Welcome to another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast. On this show, we take a relational approach to turning readers into fans by using expensive words based on our emotions to write compelling stories. This way, instead of finding customers who read, we find friends and fans who will go on any storytelling path with us as we walk down the winding roads that make up our author journeys. Get ready to learn more about writing the story of your heart right now on Writing Expensive Words. Hello, wonderful writing friends. Welcome back to the Writing Expensive Words podcast. Today, we are going to start something new that I've been wanting to do for a while. And we're going to do what I like to call a real R-E-E-L story breakdown. So what I'm going to do is break down something from television or film. Uh, Today, it's going to be television. And I'm going to tell you what literary devices they're employing. Uh, And then we're also going to have a version of this that's called Lit Story Breakdown, L-I-T, which is going to be when I break down books from now on. Because I want you to see a lot of the principles we talk about on this show in action. So today we are going to dive into a show that I probably should have watched a lot earlier but didn't. Uh, But anyways, I'm now on board. So today we're talking about The Queen's Gambit, which is a television show on Netflix, which is based on the 1983 novel by Walter Tevis. And do you know what else was made in 1983? This lady. That's right. It was a good year, I feel like. Got this book. We got me. Win-win. So I want to break down the things that make this introduction special because it's a great lesson in what you can do if you're persistent and if you are willing to make revisions. Uh, This is kind of a famous success because it took the maker the person who was proposing this show uh, around 30 years to get this show made. And we're going to do a whole discussion about that as we get toward the end and why I think that this uh, is so successful as an overview. But today, what day is it? Tuesday? We are going to talk about, I'm going to feel really silly if it's not Tuesday. I don't know my watch does. Oh, it's Wednesday. Oh my gosh, it's Wednesday, you guys. I'm so messed up. (laughs) We just got back from camping uh last week that's why there weren't any episodes for a while and so now uh yeah wednesday so it's wednesday you guys and we're going to talk about why introductions matter and how the showrunners for the queen's gambit pull you in and uh i'm going to talk a little bit about orphans i know you guys are like Again, with the orphans, but there's, listen, there's a pattern, okay? We've discussed it in my writing group, too, now, and I think uh, there's going to be an episode all about orphans at some point on this podcast. But let's go ahead and dive into why the introduction of the Queen's Gambit matters and how you can use those techniques in your own storytelling to do some Queen's Gambit-style magic. All right. So the way that the show opens is we have the protagonist, which is a a woman, right? A woman with red hair. And the protagonist, who we don't know her name yet, but her name's Elizabeth Harmon, is in distress. She's in a hotel. We don't know why she's overslept, but there's this guy at her door. Her makeup's a mess. Uh, She, like, takes these pills with alcohol, and that's setting a tone, and that's 
kind of preparing you for what's coming later, right? Um, but so that's the thing is we find our protagonist, Elizabeth Harmon, in a full-on state of panic and distress because um, she is about to, for the first time, which we don't know this yet, but uh, if you're just watching the... Oh, by the way, this is like full of spoilers. I know I just told you like the first two minutes, but if you haven't watched the show, um, I'm probably going to be doing as many episodes as there are of the show. So if you're like, this is episode one, if you don't want any spoilers from the Queen's Gambit episode one, don't listen to this until you've watched the first episode, okay? Because that's what we're going to talk about. All right, so now that the spoiler warning is over, we can proceed. So we come in and she, Elizabeth Harmon, Beth, right? She's in distress and she like deals with all this stuff. She like puts, cleans her makeup off. She runs downstairs in the hotel lobby and she goes and there we see who we don't know who it is yet, but it's Vasily Borgov, who is the Russian player that she really wants to be the entire time that she's going through um, her chess career. So, uh, and then what happens? We go back to the future. No, we go back in the past. So the, the opening of the show shows Paris 1967. So we have a point of reference for where it is. And obviously like the clothes and everything, you can tell it's the 60s. Um, and then we flash, we flash back, but we're not exactly sure how much we're flashing back. There's no real like, hey, this is when, except that um, something bad happens, right? We learn that Beth's mother has died in a car accident and she's still alive and that she's going to the Methuen home. And in the first scene where um, that in the Methuen home where uh, Mrs. Deerdorf is reading her file or Ms. Deerdorf, I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, is reading the file, she sees that uh, Elizabeth's mother has died. She's reading about what's happened. And if you pause it, you can see that the file says that it was created on 7-23-37. So that gives us, um, and we see also that Elizabeth's date of birth is 1-16-28. So 1928. So we know that she's nine years old. All right. So we, she's wearing this dress. She has this long hair. Her dress has her name on it, right, Beth, which later on you find out how that got there. Um, but the first thing that happens is she goes into this place and her innocence, not, we're going to get to that in a second. Her innocence is stripped away, which I'll get to, but her individuality is completely stripped away. How? She uh, she has all of her long hair cut off. It's so sad. And then she has her dress taken away and she's given a uniform. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of the scene from Guardians of the Galaxy where Peter Quill is going to jail and they spray him with that orange stuff. And, you know, like Chris Pratt couldn't eat for months, probably just for that one shot of him without a shirt on being sprayed with orange stuff, uh, which I assume is a de-louser for aliens, like alien strength. But it's that loss of individuality that a lot of readers or viewers are going to feel compelled to have empathy for because you can be missing a lot of things in life, right? But as long as you get to be who you feel you should be, who you want to be, that's something special. That's something magic. And when that's taken away, when even that's taken away, it's there's this feeling of worthlessness. There's this feeling of 
um, like that life is pointless and what am I even doing? And you can see that Beth is, has like, she's not doing okay. Right? Like we know she's not like crying. She's not an overly emotional child. That's one of the things we learn about her right away, which could be because of the situation with her mother. Uh, and in that first episode, we do learn that her mother has run away from Beth's father and he wants to see her, but she won't let him. And so, uh, after we have the loss of identity, the loss of individuality, then we see um, that all of the girls are being forced to take medication every day. And they're called, Jolene calls them vitamins, right? Jolene is a side character whom I love. I am obsessed with her. Uh, and I can't help but think, you know, like of Dolly Parton's song Jolene when I think about this Jolene who is also very feisty, you know, please don't. Please don't take him just because you can. I think I think I'm under on words in that one. But it's educational, so I can do what I want. Uh, so they're taking these medications, and later on in the very first episode, we learn that the green pill, which Elizabeth is kind of storing and using at night to be able to run through different chess moves, uh, goes away, and that's an interesting dynamic as well. But uh, I shouldn't fast forward that much because we have another character who's vital to this whole situation. We see that the first time that Beth goes to math class, she gives her teacher the thing, and her teacher's like, oh, you already know all this stuff. I don't know what to do with you. So she gives, she's like, go clap the racers over the sink in the basement. And when Elizabeth goes down there, um, she figures out that she sees, she meets Mr. Scheibel, who's the janitor, and he is playing chess and she's intrigued by the pieces. And I cannot, like, I've been searching all over the internet for this. So if you know it, please tell me, but there's this condition where people, um, who there, there are certain people who get a certain like ecstasy from, um, seeing patterns and I feel like maybe that's what is going on with Elizabeth. And I cannot remember what it's called. I've looked at, like, I looked it up a ton and I couldn't find it anywhere. And it was driving me crazy. So this actual, this episode got delayed a whole day for no reason because I couldn't find the answer. Um, but so she's really intrigued by the game. She's obviously really good at math. And as she keeps playing, Mr. Scheibel uh, is able to teach her up to a certain point and... At one point, she loses, and she calls him a bad name, which I'm not going to say because I want to keep this episode where it should be for podcasting purposes. Um, but he, like, locks her out. He takes a break. And so Beth is like, what? I don't know what that is that I even called him. So she goes to Jolene, and Jolene basically gives her, like, a type of not fully informed sex, ed sex education. And we can see... Uh, we can see that through these different things, we see all of the loss of innocence, which is a really compelling and popular theme, right? I talked about that in another episode. If you're listening to the podcast, you can go back to the Iron Giant and the loss of innocence where Hogarth's loss of innocence mirrors the loss of innocence of the Iron Giant, who is obviously an amazing robot, who is sitting in my office right here. He wants to say hello. I also have a poster of the Iron Giant right behind me because he's one of my all-time favorite characters, animated or not, just in general. 
And so people like to give me Iron Giant things, which I love. Uh, that figurine is from Mondo, by the way, and it was my birthday present last year. It's one of my favorite things that I've ever gotten. Um, so it, it's just that idea that the loss of innocence is one of those universal themes that we see because at some point, every human person goes from not knowing things about life and facts of life, the birds and bees, etc., to knowing about those things. And so we see that Elizabeth has a really steep progression after her mother's death to where she has no individuality, no identity, and now she has a severe loss of innocence. And those things endear her to the viewer. And that's what you need to think about when you're writing any sort of coming-of-age story, which the first episode of the Queen's Gambit series is a full-on coming-of-age story, right? We ha we don't see it all. There are some things that are going to happen in episode two as well. Uh, but we see, for the most part, her coming-of-age story, and it endears her to us, and we care what is going to happen to her. We care. Is she going to get adopted? Uh, when she goes to the high school, we're like, oh, my gosh, she's having withdrawal sy symptoms because they've taken away the tranquilizers. Because the state was like, hey, you can't use tranquilizers in orphanages anymore. Who would have known? Like, yes, of course, that's horrible, right? Like, when I was watching it for the first time, I'm like, oh, no, this is bad. And then the, everyone, you know, Jolene even says, you're going to see some twitchy orphans around here because the orphans are having withdrawal symptoms. But Jolene sneaks a pill and gives it to uh, Beth right before she's supposed to go and do an exhibition game where she's playing all the boys of this high school chess team where, um, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh, how is she going to do? Like, you even care so much about her that you are, like, freaking out that she's having withdrawals when she's supposed to be doing this really hard thing. And when Jolene brings the pill, even though you know the pills are bad, you're like, oh, yes, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad she got that pill because now she can do the thing she needs to do because you see Chess might be a way for her to get out of what's going on in her life. And that's kind of the idea behind the entire series is that chess as a way of escape, chess as a way of becoming one's own, chess as a way out of poverty, right? These are all themes where one thing has the potential to change Beth's life, which the watchers are saying, yes, we want that. Because as they're watching her struggle, they feel attached to her and they can feel empathetic about all of these universally relatable ideas. Even though being an orphan is not uh, universal, I think that a lot of the things that have to do with being an orphan are, they do fall into that universal category. So if you haven't watched this show yet, I just told you a bunch of stuff, but it doesn't even matter what I told you because you need to go watch it and see for yourself how much you care about this strange little girl you don't know anything about. And then about 15 minutes in, you're like, oh my gosh, I hope she's going to be okay. And that is the key to an amazing intro, an amazing story. Also, you know something's wrong because we started in Paris in 1967. So you know, okay, already we're leading up to something. You know that eventually she's going to play chess on a professional level. So that's foreshadowing that takes you along the chess ride without you feeling like you're despondent and you have no hope that she'll be able to get into the real world of chess, right? It kind of carries you along until you get to that point. But you also then know, oh, something's going to be really wrong for her to mess up this match that's so important. 
And uh, it's one of those things that we talk about all the time when we're talking about introductions in literature and the huge movement towards getting the reader as close to the action as possible. And in this case, the best way to do that was to fast forward. Although the action uh, of her mom dying and her being orphaned is pretty intense, maybe the reason that it works so well to show a flash is because then at least you have some kind of hope. You know she's not going to die in the orphanage like Jane Eyre's best friend, which scarred me for life, by the way, when her friend died in the novel by uh, Charlotte Bronte. And you have these dynamics working together. You have the staff at the the orphanage where you're like, I hope they're good. I really hope they're good. Um, I, But if they're bad, I won't be super surprised. And so you're suspicious of everybody, including Mr. Scheibel, right? Because he's like down in the dark dungeon. He doesn't he doesn't emote a lot. He doesn't have an expressive demeanor about him. So you don't know, is he really trying to help Beth or not? And all these things come together to make a very compelling introduction. And so sometimes we have to do that in storytelling, right? Where we're like, okay, I'm just going to flash forward. And I wanted to talk about uh, a little bit about the tomorrow. The, ah, I can't talk. I need a drink of water. That's what's happening. So I wanted to talk a little bit about The Tomorrow War because uh, that's Chris Pratt's new film on Amazon Prime. And I watched it in the same week that I watched The Queen's Gambit because it just happened to come out that week. And everyone in my family, we're all huge Chris Pratt fans. Uh, we're, we love him. We watch all the stuff he does. And so um, including uh, Lego Movie, which is awesome and epic, and Parks and Recreation, which is one of my favorite shows ever. And you have this thing where... That movie flashes forward to a point where he's doing something and you're not really sure what's happening. And he's like running in space with all these nebulous clouds around him. And then he like crashes into a swimming pool and you're like, okay, I don't know. But then it goes back to the beginning of the story. And, you know, honestly, uh, I love Chris Pratt. I'm really excited that he has his own production uh, company now and they're making films. But I just didn't think it was successful in drawing you in right away. And I wonder if they had taken the same approach um, where they kind of started at the beginning of his life as a kid, because there's a lot of stuff about his childhood that's alluded to that's not shown. And I wonder if if showing that would have created um, a more empathetic experience as far as the audience is concerned. And by audience, I mean me and also everyone in my family, because we we do this thing as a family where we watch something and then we survey. Was it good? Did we like it? Did we like it more than this? Why didn't we like it? If we had a favorite part, what was it? Did we feel attached at the beginning? Because I'm a crazy storytelling person. So my family thinks this is normal. And when their friends come over and like we start dissecting things, they're always like, oh, wow, your mom is, like, really into stories. And my daughters and my son are like, mm-hmm, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> she really is. She cares about it a lot. And I, I just don't think that the flash forward is successful in The Tomorrow War. And I want to say that because just because the flash forward works here in The Queen's Gambit does not mean it will work for your story unless you do the work and you put in the time to use expensive words Words that cost you something emotionally, right? Because they're personal to you and they come from a place deep in your heart where real emotions have happened. And you use those expensive words to make the reader care about the main character. 
all right? I care about Chris Pratt as an actor and as a person. So, of course, I, that like kind of transfers onto the character. But even for me, I was like, I don't think this is that successful. Uh, I, I'm open to suggestions as to why you think it wasn't successful if you watch the first five minutes of that movie. Um, I'm also open to suggestions as to why you think the Queen's Gambit flash forward was successful and if it has to do with the fact that there's that moment of this is the the i would say the middle of the season and then we're going to go all the way back to the childhood um because i there are a lot of arguments for doing that i really believe that that would have solved a lot of problems that captain marvel the film ran into which uh, if you listen to the show, you know I'm a crazy Marvel fan, and I was so disappointed with Captain Marvel. It's the only Marvel movie I do not like. I don't like it at all, um, even though I love the comics. And I think that that's something that they could have done is flash to her as a kid, and that would have been more meaningful because it would have established what they were trying to set up was that people have said no to her her entire life because she's a woman, because she's a girl. And I think they could have done that in a much more compelling way. Um, so I also just briefly want to talk about how it's fun to have these moments of characterization when someone else, when another character so grossly uh, like misses what the character is like and it shows the, the audience what the character is really like. Um, for example, there's a high school teacher that comes to see Beth play, and he plays with her in the basement with Mr. Scheibel, and he brings her a doll. And I, I don't know if it was just me, but in that moment when he hands her the box, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's her own chess set. Like, that's what I thought. I'm like, oh, yes, he's a chess coach. He brought her a chess set. And you know what's in the box? It's a, This is a spoiler, obviously. It's a doll. And you know what she does with the doll? Like, Mr. Scheibel, like, nods for her to say thank you. And then as she's leaving and she goes upstairs, she throws the doll in the trash. So it just shows you, like, she's not interested in that kind of stuff. And also, it's a nice setup to where you're like, oh, man, I thought she was going to get her own chess set. And why hasn't she? And yes, I hope that happens in the future. So uh, it's just, man, it's a really interesting story. I'd love to hear your take on it. I think that we can learn a lot from it, and I'm looking forward to this series as we go through and we talk about the things in the uh, in the different episodes. And one of the huge things that we're going to talk about is sexual tension, sexual tension as a driving force in storytelling, because this uh, show does a really good job of using that. And I want to talk about that. And let's see, what other notes do I have? I just have the one more note. I talked about everything else, even though I didn't read through these uh, as we were going. I studied them earlier. But um, she, Beth uses the drugs in a sort of productive way where she uses them to get high so that she can play chess on the ceiling and learn the different moves. And I thought that was interesting. Not that I'm promoting drug use, okay? I'm absolutely not. I would not do that. Um, but I think it's interesting. It says something about her character that instead of, escapism which is what drugs are often used for she uses them in a way to focus which i guess is kind of like um oh gosh what's that show i can't remember the name of it it's a show about like this hospital and one of the doctors like overdoses on ritalin because they're trying to use it to focus so that's something interesting about that character but obviously that show didn't have enough of an impact on me to warrant me remembering the name of it 
that's all I've got for you today. I'd love to hear what you think about Flash Forward intros, what you think about the show. And as always, it is never too late to write the story of your heart. It's been wonderful hanging out with you, and I will talk to you again soon. This has been another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast with me, your host, Kristen Spencer. I'd love to hear your amazing writing thoughts and questions from your awesome writing brain. You can find me on Instagram at kristen.n.spencer or at literary symmetry. Or you can email me at kns at literarysymmetry.com. This podcast is funded by awesome listeners like you. If you'd like to support this podcast and keep it rolling, you can head over to www.patreon.com forward slash expensive words. You can keep all of my hosting and software needs going for the show by donating less than what it costs for one fancy cup of tea a month. And to be eligible to join writing coaching calls with me, check out the $12 a month sponsorship. You will get to ask me questions live about the story of your heart once a month and meet other cool writers. Thanks again for listening and happy writing.